Good morning again. Good to see you guys. Uh, we're going to finish Exodus chapter 4 today. So if you have uh, a scripture journal, we will be beginning our time on page 22, excuse me, 20. Uh, we're going to look back at verses 21 through 23 just briefly for context today, and then we will move through the last two paragraphs of chapter 4, two vignettes. Uh, today is the end of Exodus chap- part 1, not chapter 1. Uh, we did take a while to get through chapter 1, but not eight weeks. Uh, part 1 is the first four chapters, and part 1 of Exodus is the origin story of the prophet Moses. And God is an active player in this origin story. Obviously, he's probably the main character of the book of Exodus, you could argue. He takes the most action. He gets the most good done. But the book focuses on Moses, where he came from, what kind of world he was born into, and then him running from his past. That's the majority of chapter 2. God calling him back in chapter 3, arguing with him some in chapter 4. And then here at the end of chapter 4, he will finally, at the end of our time today, make his way back to the land of Egypt. So this chapter, chapter 4, ends with two vignettes. Uh, What I mean when I say a vignette is I mean we deal with the same characters that we've seen so far, but they're in a new context, and especially the first vignette today, uh, some things happen that are very hard to understand, extremely obtuse uh, in our context. And so what I'm going to tell you in advance is the first vignette is Moses encountering God one more time before he gets back to Egypt. And in that encounter, Moses has an experience with God. He sees and and feels the fear of something that really the people of the earth haven't seen manifest in their presence for about 600 years prior to this moment. It's God's wrath. The last time we see God's wrath truly poured out against people in the scriptures is all the way back when God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. You guys know that story. God rains fire down. Lot's wife looks back. She gets turned into a pillar of salt. Not a great day for her or Lot, uh, but it's been a while since then. Since then, God has been a redeeming, healing, helping God. And I think, sometimes like we do too, God's people may have forgotten that there's more to him than only mercy. And that mercy is really only valuable if there is actually a threat of wrath upon which God can put mercy so that we don't have to pay that price. So that's going to be vignette one. And then the second little story that we're going to look at is when Aaron and Moses finally arrive in Israel and they meet with the elders of Israel and the people. Of Israel. So we'll spend about 80% of our time this morning on that first story and we'll wrap up with the second story. So uh, let's jump into the scriptures and get going. We've got some ground to cover today. Like I said, we'll begin reading in verse 21 just to get some context and we'll read through verse 26 to get a grasp on this first uh, encounter with God. So the Lord said to Moses, this is Exodus 4:21, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do in front of Pharaoh all of the miracles that I've put in your power. But I, the Lord, will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. And when that happens, verse 22, you will say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So that's the immediate context out of which the next verses happen. If you've never read these verses, you better buckle up. This is a wild ride. Here we go. Verse 24. At a lodging place on the way to Egypt, the Lord met Moses and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah, that's Moses' wife, took a flint, a sharp piece of stone that you start a fire with, and cut off her son's foreskin. This is Gershom, who's probably elementary age at this point. And she touched Moses' feet with it, and then she said these words, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So God left him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood, because of the circumcision. 
So I have to ask you guys, did any of you read ahead? Did any of you know that we were going to have to deal with this passage? Anybody? Would you be? Yeah. Uh-huh. That's why you're here today, right? You made sure. Uh, this is a challenging part of Scripture because it forces us to deal with some stuff that's kind of irrelevant to us. And not just irrelevant because we live in a different culture, but irrelevant because Moses and his family are operating under the Old Covenant, the Old Testament idea of God's mercy and God's grace. Now, the grace that God shows in the Old Covenant, it's important to me that I explain this to you. In a sense, it's like all of the people in the Old Testament who are saved by God, that salvation happens on a credit-based system. Not their good works credit, but it is credited to them on their behalf, but the wrath of God against those people is still put on Jesus when he goes to the cross. God, knowing all things, seeing all of time and being outside of time, is able to do that. He can have patience with sinful people and say to them, the price hasn't been paid yet linearly, but eternally it has been. And so I can, I can impute that to you, Old Testament people, so that you can be saved by the same Jesus that all of us look back on. We're saved by debit is a better way to think about it. The price has already been paid in our past, and so the money is there in the bank account to cover the price of our salvation from our sin. But it's the same operative thing. So I do want you to understand that there is grace in play here. It is still the grace of Jesus, but the way that God has explained that and the rules, especially the signs and seals that he's given to that, are different in the Old Testament context than they are in our New Testament context. Now what I think is very interesting is, if you look back at verse 26, I think after combing through myriad commentaries and looking at the Hebrew and everything else this week, and I, I started last week actually, because I just knew this was going to be really dense and challenging. I think Moses, who actually wrote down the book of Exodus, I think he included verse 26 because he thought it would help us. So I'm just going to read it to you again. You don't have to look back, but just listen to this. Listen to the way it's worded. Okay? Moses says, It was then that Zipporah said, a bridegroom of blood, because of the circumcision. I think if you and I were in the temple in Jerusalem in like 950 BC, and this happened to be the reading that day, we would get to verse 24 and we'd go, God sought to kill Moses after he just called him out. Then we get to verse 25 and go, and Zipporah's solution to that was to cut her elementary age son and then throw his foreskin at her husband. And we, we would probably still be scratching our heads because those are not normal things that happen really in any culture anywhere, okay? But then we get to verse 26 and it's implied that we would hear Moses, the author of Exodus, connecting the idea that she called him a bridegroom of blood with the circumcision itself, and we would all look at each other, and we would go, okay, okay, I get that. That makes sense. That makes total sense to me. Now, what I can tell by looking at all of you and your dead blank expressions is we're not in 950 BC, and you don't know what this means, so I want to help you. In order to understand what's happening in this story, why did God put this in your Bible, we have to look at that phrase. If Moses included verse 26 to be the key that unlocks verses 24 and 25, then we have to understand what does Zipporah mean when she says a bridegroom of blood. I think she's using a Hebrew idiom. And we can blame Hebrew for being dense and hard to understand, but I don't know if you know this or not, you already, if you can understand what I'm saying, you already know like the most complex, hardest to learn language in the history of the world. I don't know if you've ever spoken to somebody who had to learn English as a second language, but English is crazy because it has all these grammatical rules and then it breaks them all, which is why we have silly sayings like I before E except after C and sometimes like A as in neighbor and way and it just, you have to have all of these weird little exceptions to the rule that almost outweigh the rule. For instance, okay, maybe you've had this experience. Um, sometimes in my house, we all just wait to see who's going to take the trash out. We just wait. 
We'll just see, can we get it higher? Can we stuff it down more? It's almost a game, a little bit of a challenge. Can I condense my trash so it doesn't become my job? How, how far open can the lid be before the whole house smells like trash? Normally, I'm the one who's supposed to do this. I'm just going to take responsibility for that. I'm not trying to cast any shade on my wife, okay? But I don't like to, so I sit back and I kind of wait. Well, sometimes I have this thought. The trash is overflowing. I have other stuff that I want to do, or I just feel lazy, to be honest with you. I don't want to do that. And so I'll think to myself, well, I'm going to just have to bite the bullet, and I'm going to have to take the trash out. And I pick it up and I take it out and I take it to the trash can, which is just off the porch. It takes me about 17 seconds to do this chore and then my life goes back to normal, okay? What I think to myself is a phrase that we've all used for stuff that we shouldn't have used it for, which is to bite the bullet. Did I really have to bite a bullet? Was I actually undergoing Civil War battlefield triage where somebody had to hand me a musket ball for me to bite down on so they could sever my leg from below the knee? No, I took the trash out and I'm going to be fine. Right, yeah, okay, so I think we understand the idea of idiom, don't we? Something's ruffled our feathers. I don't have feathers. It ran on our parade. I've never had a parade. We talk this way. I think this is what Zipporah is doing. I think she's making a statement that represents something that's very common in her culture, and that those of us, once we dig into it today, can understand it, will realize this is actually a really good thing that happens at this campsite on the way to Egypt. So, looking at the phrase that she uses, let's start with bridegroom. Bridegroom is not really a word that you and I use that much in our context. We talk about grooms, and a groom, if it's not somebody who takes care of a horse, is a man who's going to get married. The difference between a husband and a groom is a groom intends to make the commitment of marriage, and he probably still has to deal with all the family drama of being married, but he's not married yet. The husband has made that commitment and is actively continuing to uphold that commitment. That's why he's still a husband and not an ex-husband, if you know what I'm saying. So, in Hebrew, there's no distinction. Part of that is because in America, we stay engaged for way too long, and we spend too much on weddings, and it's a whole big thing that the Bible doesn't have context for. So, when Zipporah says to her husband, you are a mm to me, she's just saying husband. She's communicating, we have been married. This isn't their wedding ceremony. That would be even weirder. She's saying to him something about the foreskin of her elementary-aged firstborn son is actually taking this relationship to the next level. That's why she feels the need to identify him not by name, but to communicate that he is a bridegroom, okay? Some couples, they have trouble, they go to marriage counseling. Other couples, they have trouble, they go on a camping trip and have an emergency midnight circumcision. You gotta figure out what works for you, okay? Whatever it is that brings you guys together, you do it, all right? So that's bridegroom, she's just saying husband. But what does she mean, you are a husband of blood to me? That sounds like a vampire thing to me. It's very funny to me. You may not find this interesting, but I'm just going to tell you. I don't have time to say this, but I already started, so I'll tell you. In the King James Version of the Bible, this is translated as, you are a bloody husband to me, which is very funny because the King James Version was written in the United Kingdom where bloody is a curse word. So I think that's really funny that that's the way that little kids had to learn to memorize this. Very funny to me. So she is saying to Moses... Something about our relationship and your relationship with God requires me to make a blood sacrifice. That's what's baked into the meaning of this phrase. It begs the question, why does she need that to be true? Why does she need a blood sacrifice to be made? What is it about God that demands there be bloodshed on behalf of Moses? Why is God angry in the first place? Why call Moses out, which God did, didn't have to, chose to, why, in the midst of calling Moses out, would God argue Moses into his calling to the point that Moses is like, send somebody else, and God gets mad at him and says, okay, I'll send Aaron, but I'm still sending you. You're not going to get out of this that easy. Why do all of that, then as Moses and his family are submitted to God in obedience, heading back to Egypt, why would God come to him to kill him? I believe the answer is in verses 21 through 23. When God tells Moses what to say to Pharaoh, I want to read it to you again. 
understanding that we're looking for the context of a blood sacrifice, here is what God says. He says, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do in front of Pharaoh all the miracles that I've put in your power. But instead of him believing, what will God do? God says, I will harden his heart and he will not let the people go. You're not going to get what you want. Then you will say to Pharaoh, and this is God's ultimatum for Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel, this people group is my firstborn son. And I say to you, you better let my son go so that he may serve me. But if you refuse to do that, if you are in sin against me, Pharaoh, then I will kill your firstborn son. God is communicating in this ultimatum to the Pharaoh that he requires blood to be spilled for sin. And this is not a new idea for those of us who have read the Bible, who know it well, but it is always offensive everywhere we encounter it. It's never something that we get excited about. We are not clapping because blood has to be spilled. We have two problems. One, we think that we're not that guilty, so having a blood sacrifice feels kind of inappropriate for us because it makes us feel like if we didn't do that much, can we not just say sorry? And two, we just don't like death, which I think is a natural thing that comes from before the fall when God created us. I think death has always been the enemy of life and God. But God understands what we don't, that if he's going to be perfectly right and just, we have to be held accountable. In order to reconcile us to himself, somebody has to pay for what we did. Otherwise, he's not a good judge. He doesn't do his job well. And if God doesn't judge sin, if he's fickle, if he just picks and chooses who he wants when he wants to and there's no rhyme or reason to it, I don't trust a God like that, do you? If he just changes his mind on a whim and snaps his fingers and decides that he'll judge some sin but not others, I don't know that I can trust him. I don't know that he's actually ultimately perfectly good. And so in God preserving his own goodness and acting on it, he has to demand an offering. God takes sin seriously, even when his mercy is engaged. God's judgment on sin is not the opposite of his grace. It is not incompatible with mercy. The mercy shows that God doesn't ignore sin, which actually gives the mercy meaning. If God doesn't judge sin, then mercy isn't mercy. It's just a nice thing God did for us. But mercy is what happens when your life is unfair and you don't get what you deserve and you don't pay for the penalty of what it is that you did wrong. That is mercy. Somebody has to still pay or God is not just. So I believe this is why Zipporah has to make a blood sacrifice. I think she actually understands the nature of God. And if you remember who her dad is, this guy named Jethro, who lives out in Midian, he doesn't have a copy of God's word. He's not in the middle of the nation of Israel. But the Bible tells us he is a priest of the Almighty God. We don't know who, where, when, or why he met God or who trained him, but he's doing his best to love God. So Zipporah knows there is a God she doesn't necessarily know how to appease him. She isn't familiar with the rules. But I think what's most important is for us to understand this desperate act in the middle of the night as her husband is dying on the ground next to her, a deeply personal sacrifice. It's not a ritual. She's not just going through the motions. She is throwing up a Hail Mary to God, knowing that she has no idea what she's doing, right or wrong, and hoping desperately that God will accept her sacrifice and not kill her husband. God initially gave circumcision, which is what Zipporah decides to do to try to appease God. He gave it to humanity in Genesis 17. And I think it's very interesting, so I'm going to read it to you, the way that God lays it out, the rules that everybody's supposed to follow, and I just want you to have in mind how kind of freelance Zipporah's version is compared to what God lays out in Genesis 17. He says this to Abraham. God said to Abraham in verse 9 of Genesis 17, as for you, you will keep my covenant. And Everybody after you, you and your offspring throughout their generations. And this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You will be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between you and me. It's a sign. That's important. 
any uncircumcised male, this is verse 14, who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin will be cut off from his people because he has broken my covenant. Zipporah and Moses didn't do any of that stuff. They didn't circumcise Gershom on the eighth day. They didn't choose to take the sign of God's covenant and put it in place on the next generation in their household, which implies that they probably weren't teaching Gershom about God. Maybe he had this sort of Wild West version of worship that was mixed with other cultural ideas from Midian based on his grandfather's faith, but Moses, I think, understood that he left God in Egypt. He didn't expect to see God again. He didn't expect to hear from him again. And this should make, help us make sense of what's going on because if Moses is an Israelite, he knows verse 14 of Genesis 17. He understands that if he doesn't circumcise Gershom, Gershom and Moses both will be cut off from God's people. Moses already made that choice. He cut himself off. There's no penalty in his mind. He doesn't have to obey these rules. He doesn't think he's ever going back to the Israelite people enslaved in Egypt. Yet here they are on their way back. God has called them back. God knows he's sending Moses back to his people. And therefore, the expectations of the covenant are still on Moses. Especially if Moses is going to be God's mouthpiece. How can Moses stand in the presence of the Pharaoh of Egypt and say to him, God is holding you accountable for your sin when God hasn't even looked inside the walls of his own house to see if he's practicing obedience? In choosing not to circumcise Gershom, Moses is demonstrating that he is still reluctant, he's still dragging his feet, he still isn't really sure if this is really the real God or not. I think the signs that he carries are probably just as much for his heart as they will be for the elders of Egypt and the Pharaoh himself. So for that reason, the reason that Moses has not been faithful to God in his own household, God comes to Moses. And we don't know exactly how this happens. God either gives Moses a vision, maybe he speaks to him in a dream, maybe he has a heart attack, maybe Moses has a stroke or a seizure. Something happens that clearly indicates that the presence of God is there and it intends to end Moses because of his disobedience, or at least communicate that that's what its intention is, okay? When that happens, it all clicks for Zipporah. I love it. She's staring down the God of the universe and still that sort of mama bear instinct sticks in and she, or kicks in and she's like, I got to do something. We got to try this. And so she jumps up. She grabs Gershom. She drags him over by the edge of the fire. Probably doesn't tell him what's about to happen. She's like, take off your robe. He's like, okay, I don't know why. She grabs a flint. She does what you do with the flint to circumcise a human being. And then she takes that and the way the ESV translates it is that she touches it to Moses' feet. Okay, in Hebrew, so that you know, Feet are a euphemism for something else. So it's possible that that's where she touched Moses, okay? It's also possible, based on the way that the Hebrew is written, that she didn't touch it, but she tossed it at him. Like she threw it, okay? Again, this reads a little bit like a case of psychosis. It's not. I believe this is Zipporah freaking out. This is her Hail Mary moment. Like I don't know, some of you guys don't care about sports. This is the best analogy I could think of. This is like her buzzer beater shot, okay? This is her trying to tag somebody out at home, before the winning run is done. She feels the presence of God looming over her husband because of his willing disobedience. And she's crying out to God and saying, here, take this blood instead. Our family does belong to you. We are obedient. We will follow. We do care. You are real. We do believe. And what does God do? He accepts it. Not Moses. Moses doesn't change his mind right away. He probably does when he wakes up from whatever's going on with him and wipes the blood off of his shoes. But Zipporah acts in faithfulness 
when she makes this desperate move in the middle of the night to save the life of her husband. She doesn't fall back on her Midianite traditions. She does whatever it is she can think of that sort of kind of fits her vague idea of who God is. And it's enough because in her heart, her intent is to do right. Her intent is to give God everything that she has. Her intent is not to hold back. It's not to defend herself. It's not to go through the motions. It's not to become more religiously pious. It's to desperately fall on the mercy and grace of God. And that has always been the doorway through which faithful people walk if they're going to meet the Lord. That's the only way. We don't do it by checking boxes. We don't do it by getting stamps on our Sunday school card. We do it when there is a moment, like we sang in multiple songs today, where the weight of our life falls onto God and he either catches us or he doesn't. But we don't hold back anymore. To be all in, this is what Zipporah is ready to do. And I think it's going to be necessary because of the stuff that Moses and her family are about to go through. God is getting them ready. He's preparing their hearts for some of this conflict that's coming. Okay? So in her act of desperate obedience... Zipporah simultaneously affirms three things. If you're taking notes, you can write these down if you'd like to. There's a great parallel from this story between what Zipporah does and how Jesus works on our behalf. First, Zipporah affirms that God does demand blood for sin. She understands this. This is true in her life. She's going to act on it. Second, she understands that God's covenant with Abraham, the means of grace by which anybody could be saved, was signed and sealed by circumcision. That that was the way other people knew who you belonged to, and it was also something you did to remind yourself, I belong to God. Because people are fickle and they forget. Third, she affirms that God will accept the blood of the innocent as payment for sins of the wicked. At this point in the story, there is no tabernacle, there's no temple, there's no synagogue, there are not regular feasts and sacrifices There are occasional sacrifices that people make to God to say thank you to him, to appease him for their sin, but it's not regular, it's not rhythmic. The people as a whole have not accepted this idea that God needs a sacrifice if they're going to be with him. There has to be somebody else who pays the price. That doesn't come into play until the end of the 10th plague when blood goes above the doors of the Israelite people and the angel of death passes over them because innocent lambs have paid the price in their place. This is the meaning, these three things are what is packed into you are a bridegroom of blood to me. This is what 950 BC Israelites would look at each other and nod and go, yeah, we get it, okay? So that's good and right for them, but you and I live on the other side of the new covenant. So when we look at this story, what we should see are shadows of Jesus. Jesus Christ, who is a bridegroom of blood to us. He is one who has paid the price by his blood for you and I. We, the church, are his bride, according to the New Testament, and he has made peace with us by the blood of his sacrifice. So in Christ, in the new covenant, these things are affirmed. God still demands blood for sin, okay? He is still just. This is what Romans 6 tells us. There are wages for sin, and those wages are death. That that's what we earn when we rebel against God. We get the life we wanted on earth, and then we get to deal with the consequences later. Second, that in his new covenant, the one that we all live under, it's now signed by baptism. This is the sign of the covenant. And it's sealed by the Holy Spirit. Not just our physical bodies, but our spiritual self is transformed and bound together with the Spirit of God. And that is a seal on our lives so that our salvation is permanent. We don't lose it. And third, that God will accept the blood of Jesus as payment for the sins of the wicked. Not just anybody innocent anywhere, but one on purpose paying for the sins of all. This is a magnified miracle. This isn't just that we can take each other's place sometime, somewhere. It's that Jesus did it for anybody anywhere who will ever believe. And that's a much bigger and better piece of news than just that God might accept somebody's blood sacrifice somewhere. So what is Zipporah doing in Exodus chapter 4, verses 24 through 26? She's sharing the gospel with her husband, a prophet. That's what she's doing. 
She's preaching to him the truth of God's character, his mercy, and their obedience in response to that. Zipporah believes that if she takes this step, it will be enough for God because she trusts him. And in that moment, she gives him all of herself. Even though none of what she did looks like God's command in Genesis 17, her faith, her best, her life is what God wants. And now that God has the full attention of Moses and his family, now he's going to send them to Egypt. And we're going to find out how the people of Israel respond. Let's keep reading in verse 27. The Lord then spoke to Aaron. And he said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. And so he went and he met him at the mountain of God and he kissed him there. Because he hasn't seen his brother in probably 30 or 40 years. Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people, the staff into a snake, the leprous hand, the blood being poured out or the water being poured out and turned to blood. Verse 31, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they worshiped him. So this is the second vignette. Moses and Aaron are reunited and they head to Goshen. Goshen is the land where Israel lives. It's given over to Joseph and his ancestors at the end of the book of Genesis. And what started as kind of like a small suburb of Piramses or one of these big Egyptian cities where the pharaohs lived turns into this slaving district. As the people of Israel in Exodus chapter 1 are enslaved, what was kind of their beautiful, lush, healthy land where they could farm and be alone and be left alone now is an area that's gated and guarded and covered over by Egyptian slave drivers. So Moses and Aaron are able to go. They're able to gather together the elders, maybe at night, maybe not, but under the kind of the cover of secrecy so that Pharaoh doesn't feel that there's a rebellion brewing right away. And they reveal some of these signs. What I think is so amazing is that when the Israelites hear that God has visited them, that he's a willing witness of their abuse, that that causes them to worship. They've been crying out, not directly to God, just to anybody, anywhere who's listening. And God comes to them, he speaks to them through Aaron and says, I am aware, I have seen, I have heard, I do know, and change is coming for you. So why would God's visit to them be a blessing when God just visited Moses and nearly killed him? This is why I think these stories are in this order. I think it's important to Moses that we understand the juxtaposition that's happening here. The guy who wrote this book. He, he wants us to see that sometimes when God is nearby, it's very bad news for those of us who are not in the covenant. And sometimes it's very good news for God to be nearby for those of us who are in the covenant. That's sort of the difference here. In each case, we're dealing with the presence of God. Not just a message, not just a prophet, even though God chooses to use a prophet. You notice in the people's response in verses 31 and 32, or just 31, excuse me, that they understand that God himself is near. They don't find a lot of comfort in the presence of a good preacher, a good pastor, a human being to lead them. They find worship that is motivated by the idea that God himself has come near to them, has come low, has stooped down from heaven to bless them and care for them. The difference between these two encounters when God comes to Moses and when he appears close by to the people of Israel is that God's presence in Moses' life is the presence of wrath and judgment against sin. It's God dealing with what is wrong the way that you deal with what's wrong. You handle it. You get rid of it. People pay for it and then you move on. Excuse me, you move on. It's very penal in nature. The, the idea is that you're going to be penalized for what you did and then that's it. You, you made your choice. You have to deal with it now. Moses and his family were outside of God's covenant. That's the reason. That's the binding difference here. When God comes to the people of Israel, he's coming to them in, as they are in the form of his firstborn son. That's what he, the message he gives Moses to give to Pharaoh. They're his child. What makes them his child? They're the people of his covenant. That's what he means when he talks to Abraham in Genesis 17 about his descendants. 
So it may seem a little bit like splitting hairs to you, but what I'm telling you is the people of Israel are covered over by the covenant. They have been keeping the sign of the covenant in their midst. They've been faithful to practice that. It's Moses who hasn't done these things because he's moved outside of the people of God, moved away, turned his back, has no intention of coming home. God is near to both Moses and Israel. God is near to unrepentant Moses. God is near to Israel, who is a covenant child. Moses was not taking God seriously at all, despite having encountered him personally. The irony is that Israel was begging a God they could barely believe in to do anything at all to help them, and the slightest sense of his presence was enough to put them on their knees. Yet Moses seems still to resist and not believe and not be sure. So here's the principle for you, that God is near to those who would consider themselves near to him, and God is near to those who feel that they are far from him, even those who have spent their lives running from him. God does not actually distance himself from people. This is a lie that church people made up to help themselves navigate the guilt they feel when they sin after their salvation. It is not a biblical principle. God is nearby human beings. He is not far from people who are confused. He is not far from agnostics. God is not far from atheists, though they do all they can to separate themselves. You may have heard this before, but the two things every atheist shouts are, there is no God and I hate him. That's what an atheist believes, okay? There is something separating them personally from God, and it's typically very, very personal to them. We think, I must be far from God because I fell again in my sin. So what I really need to do is get back into the Bible for a few days. i got to make sure I'm at church on Sunday. And it's foolishness. If that's your religious system, if that's the way that you medicate and respond to sin in your life, then God is not your God. Your own serenity is God. Your own sense of peace and inner calm, that's the thing that you're worshiping. That's the thing that's driving the action in your life. You probably have confused Satan, the accuser, with just your own guilty conscience. The part of you that says, I messed up and I need to fix this and I need to repent. That's a good urge. But the part of you that says that I have to make myself better, I have to make sure I never do this again or else God will do X, Y, and Z to me, that is not true. And the idea that we can buy God's favor off with good acts is itself totally antithetical to the message of the whole Bible. It's not Zipporah's willingness to follow all the rules in Genesis 17. She doesn't stop and get her Old Testament Bible out and go line by line and make sure that she follows it all. She has an experience with God where she desperately yells out, this is all I know to do, and if it's not enough for you, then kill us. But I think it will be. Because it's all I have. It's the blood of my son and for the life of my, my husband, for my own life. God, we're trying to follow you. We're doing our best here. We don't understand how this is supposed to work. My husband is a cynic because of the life that he's lived. He doesn't believe yet. Will you, just, will you just fix this for us, God? Will you yourself take responsibility and heal what is wrong with us? That is a good and right example of repentance. Not self-help. Not cleaning yourself up morally, scrubbing your soul till you feel better about yourself. No way. Even compassion can become to some degree cathartic, or not compassion, excuse me, confession can become to some degree cathartic in a way that isn't helpful to us. If the value and the power of confession is we feel like we did a good thing for God, then we're not really confessing the real sin because the real sin is the pride that still lives underneath that confession, that still needs to find its own way out and get its own favor and have somebody slap it on the back and say, way to go in Jesus' name. And that's not our position. Our position is one of humility. We live our lives on our knees. We are in union with Christ because he wants us to be, not because we've earned it, not because we've done anything at all. And the lie we believe when we feel that we fell is that we were somehow up high to begin with. And that isn't true. We are low and lowly, and the same God who stoops low in the name of Israel stoops low in the name of Philip, 
And whatever your name is and True North Church and any believer anywhere, he is still stooping low. He likes to do that. He's good at it. So when we see God taking his covenant seriously in the lives of Zipporah and Moses and also in the life of Israel, it should motivate us to ask ourselves, as people who consider ourselves to be covenant people, who say that we belong to Jesus and each other, what does it mean to be faithful to a covenant? What does it mean to be faithful to the new covenant, the covenant that we have through Jesus' blood, the covenant that we sang about for 20 minutes today? Jesus lays it out in three steps. Here we go. You can take these notes if you want to. The first step of covenant faithfulness is loving God with everything that we have. Jesus was asked this question a couple of times in his ministry, probably a lot more, but at least two that were written down. What do I have to do? What do I lack? What else is there? And he said, love God with everything. Everything you have. Union with God through Jesus is the object of every day for us. How we understand and practice our union with God is the only thing that defines our life as believers. We abandon what we want. We replace it with what he wants. We stop whatever else we're doing in our day and we worship God. And we understand that whether or not we have worshiped God is the only metric for whether or not any given day is successful. Whether or not it matters at all. All the other stuff we do ought to happen after that's done and as a result of that being true in our lives. Worship of God. Giving him everything we have. Step two, Jesus says, is to love others like they are as real, as valuable, as dignified, as meaningful as we are to ourselves. To love other people like they matter to God the way that God says that they matter to him. Do we nitpick that? Do we parse it apart in its original language to the point that it loses all meaning? Or do we just read it and go, God means this. He means to love other people the way I love myself. So I'm just going to try to do that now. I think that's what we're supposed to do. Step three, and this is what happens after salvation. God's plan for us, when when Jesus is, is ready to ascend into heaven, he says that we make disciples in his name. And we do that by teaching his life, his death, and resurrection. We turn the love of God, step one, into the love of other people, step two, by way of the gospel of Jesus Christ, step three. It's one thing. Do you love God enough to give your life away to other people, and as you do it, will you tell them why? Will you point back to Jesus? That's it. That's all you got to do. I know it's not that simple. I'm being a little bit sarcastic. It's the hardest thing in the world because we're selfish. We don't want to do that. What about all the stuff that I like? What about my life? What about how hard I've worked? What about my career and the people around me and my reputation and my family and what they're going to think? And I think that's probably where Moses was. We'll see how this goes. Maybe when we get a little bit farther down the road, then we'll take these small commands seriously. But it's in the life of Zipporah that we see a person who's willing to say, whatever it costs, I'll give it all to you. I don't just want to appease you, God. I want to belong to you. That's the circumcision element. I want to be in the covenant. I'm not just trying to make a sacrifice for its own sake. I want to be in. So I'll ask you, is your life about those things? Because if it's not, if your life is about you, even though you come to this church, you just got a wake-up call from Exodus 4. You just watched a woman from Midian who doesn't have any idea what she's doing outserve you in a moment of desperation. And God is going to use that in your life to invite you to repent and make a change. A change that's only empowered by his spirit. A change that makes you not just more like Jesus, but better connected to him. Don't get the order of operations wrong. It starts with knowing him personally and then he changes us. That's the way this works. If anything is in the way of you giving yourself to God, when we're done today, you better get up out of your seat and go handle it. Okay, That's God's invitation to you. I'm not going to follow up with each of you on that. So I don't want to make you feel guilty, but I do want to motivate you. If God's moving, if the Spirit of God is pushing on you right now, I'm not taking God's covenant seriously. I don't really care about any of this. This is all just a thing that I do so people will like me and I have a place to belong. This is a chance to change that. You have an opportunity. 
God has not come to you outside of the covenant yet and judged your sin in a way that pours his wrath out on your life. You still have a chance to be found in Christ. And if you've not followed Jesus, if that's your story, then learn from Moses. Don't make God come to you in judgment. Don't force him to do that by denying him and resisting him again. If you've never surrendered to Jesus, do it now. Wave the white flag in your life. Sling the foreskin across the room, if you will. Maybe we can make that a new idiom in English. I hope we don't. (laughs) But shoot your shot. Make your move. Cry out to God. Stop waiting. That inhibition is not good. It isn't trustworthy. It's not right. It doesn't serve you. It won't lead to life. It won't protect you. It doesn't keep you safe. It keeps you dead. So so let go. Open your arms. Open your heart and say to God, I do want to be in, okay? He doesn't need you to be right right now. He doesn't need you to be clean. He doesn't need you to be polite or smart or strong. Zipporah is none of those things. What he needs is for you to cry out to him in desperation, I think that God would honestly rather answer your questions from within a relationship that you have with him, even one that you don't understand. He would prefer that to you just standing around outside of Christianity listening to people like me use big words. I don't think that's God's plan. I think my job is to try to help shepherd you guys a little bit, a few degrees closer to God before our lives end. But I think that God would like to be the one who speaks into your life. He would like to be the one who connects with you and speaks with you and loves you. I'm not saying he can't use his church, but we wait and wait and wait for this thing that maybe doesn't exist. There may not be a human being as smart as you on the face of the planet. I don't know. There may not be an argument that can finally convince you fully. What I do know is that if you will cry out to God and try him, just try God one time, he won't fail you. He won't leave you hanging. He won't just leave that unanswered forever and ever and ever. He will meet you there. This is what we learned from Zipporah. She didn't get it right, but she wanted to. She didn't impress God, but she loved him. And when you do that, when you get in on what God is doing through Jesus, you will see God at work. And then like Israel, you'll worship because you'll have sensed that God has stooped low to love you, that he has seen your oppression, that he does care to set you free. He doesn't need you to fake it. He already knows you. He already sees you. He already loves you. Let me pray for you, church. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be in your word today. And I pray, God, that this obscure very hard to understand passage of scripture would speak volumes to our hearts about your covenant nature. That covenant to you is not a magic spell, God. It's not a weird set of boundaries where we have to be incredibly careful every moment of every day or else, or else, or else, God, but that it helps us understand you. That's the point. It's you painting a self-portrait. It's you saying, be like me. Do these things this way. This is how I made you. This is what your life would look like if you hadn't been corrupted and destroyed by sin. And that's what we want. We want union with you again, God. We want to walk with you in the garden again like Adam and Eve did. Free of fear, free of separation, close to you, knowing you, loving you, just looking at you. I pray, God, that you would increase the value of that in our own hearts and minds, that it would be worth seeking, that obedience would be worth seeking because we love you, not because we're scared of what will happen if we get it wrong. We trust you to work in our lives, God. We can't make these things happen on our own. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.